All right. So we are um, going to be embarking on, so the month of October, we're going to talk a lot, mainly BJ, I'm just today, he's going to do the rest of the month, um, is going to be talking a lot about uh, spiritual beings and the heavenly realm and kind of the cast of characters that we know there. Um, today, I'm just going to start that off by talking about um, the two different realms, the realm of heaven and the realm of earth, some characteristics of both and how they overlap and why that is important to you, because it is, it's important to you to know that. So the heavens and the earth, they're distinct realms, but like I said, they're not completely separate. So I'll start by describing some characteristics of each of them. We'll start with the heavens. So the heavens in ancient cosmology, what did the writers of the Old Testament think about the heavens and the people that were a part of the ancient Near Eastern culture? How did they perceive of the heavens? Because uh, the more we understand about that, um, that can inform how we read what they wrote. It gives us a deeper understanding of what they were trying to communicate if we see it from their perspective rather than our modern perspective. So the word heaven, or heavens, as it's often put in our Old Testament, can mean different things. Um, it's all determined by what's the context around that word. Uh, first off, it can just be really simple. The word heavens can just mean sky. It can just mean what what's up here. Think about Genesis 1, where God says, let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So when you hear that, you don't think like, oh, God's saying, let birds fly in heaven where dead people go. <laughs> He's talking about the sky, the creatures, that, uh, the birds that live in the sky. That's a pretty simple take on it. Um, how we are going to talk about it um, today and going forward is mostly going to be um, conceiving of heaven as kind of God's space, the realm uh, that that God dwells in. And uh, I keep doing this. <laughs> so people in uh, ancient Near Eastern times in those places, it was very much a that's up there and we're down here. They kind of had a spatial relationship to those powerful uh, deity, God type things. Those are up here um, in spatial relation and I am down here. Um, which is you read through your Old Testament, you look at Psalms and they talk about Sheol and the grave and the depths and all of that. Those as always a place of death and struggle and all of these things. And then God is always in this exalted space that is above. So there's that spatial relation there. Um, in Deuteronomy, Moses says, look down from heaven, your holy dwelling. So when he says heaven there, he's talking about that spatial place, like uh, uh, the the aboveness of God. Now, ancient cosmology has kind of broken my brain, <laughs> and I'm still trying to let it sink in. So I'm going to try to explain this as best I can, but I totally default to everything BJ says in the next three weeks, because I'm really still working on this. We all have this modern conception of cosmology, because we know what stars are. We understand matter, and energy, and light, photons, light years, outer space, planets, all of that stuff, that they didn't have that knowledge. So they had a different conception of these things. And to understand what they actually physically are, but set that aside 
to come into the perspective of people that didn't know that and read from that perspective what they wrote is really difficult for me. <laughs> it has been so hard. So I'm going to try to work through this. So the biblical writers, the people in ancient, um, ancient, the ancient Hebrews, when I read like Genesis and I read about people trying to build a tower literally to heaven, to me that sounds like they thought they could do that. Like they thought they could build this tower to a physical space that they could enter into. But at the same time, there's also it seems to be a conception among ancient Hebrew writers that um, God wasn't literally in the clouds. Uh, the talking about God as being in the clouds or in the heavens is really a reference to the fact that he fills everything, that he is very transcendent. The sky is a metaphor for God's transcendence over everything. Solomon kind of recognizes this in 1 Kings. He says, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, much less this temple I have built. So God is so much bigger than everything. It's difficult for people to use. We're limited by our language and our ability to communicate. We just don't have the right words to talk about God, how, where he dwells, what his substance is. It's, it's difficult. So they're communicating in this way that he's, he's up there, but he's also this transcendent. And all through Psalms, you'll read about how God is on his throne. He's enthroned above the heavens. And there are other things in the heavens, like in the expanse of the heavens and the skies, um, as it's referred to in ancient Near Eastern culture. Think about the lights that are in the sky, like the sun, the moon, the stars, all of those things. Think about this verse here, Genesis 1, 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Think about those lights, the sun, the moon, and stars. It makes sense for them to be uh, pointing out something about the years and the days. That, that makes sense to me. And the seasons. Now, this word here, seasons, doesn't necessarily mean what we uh, think of in our English language. It actually means appointed festivals. So not uh, spring, summer, fall, and winter, but appointed festivals. So right here, we've kind of got this preview of the calendar and uh, the worship feasts uh, that the Jewish people were going to go on to celebrate. So the word I really want to focus on here, though, is let them be for signs. Let them be for signs. What does this word here mean? <clears throat> it basically is very similar to our word signs in English. It can also be described as let them be used for symbols. A symbol is a good way to unpack what it means, um, what this word here means to ancient biblical writers. Think about a symbol. It stands as a visible representation of something else. Um, spiritual beings that also dwell in the heavenly realm. This is like pointing to them. This is a symbol of those other spiritual beings that dwell in the heavenly realms. And it's also a reflection of, of God's glory. Now we'll go back to that. They didn't have the knowledge of modern cosmology and astronomy that wasn't present for them. So if you could step into that position and think about the sun, the moon, and the stars. Think about how they seem to move around. If you didn't understand that the earth was rotating, 
All you know is that each night you look up and things are slightly different. Things are moving around up there. Um, They appear to be animate. They appear to be alive. Um, They have influence over what happens on land with people. Um, They seem to be like really powerful and very important. Think that is a symbol for spiritual beings that actually um, exist in the heavenly realm. Um, It's a really good pointer toward them. So this was a common belief in ancient Near Eastern cultures that those actually were deities um, up there moving around animate in the heavenly realms. And a lot of those cultures around the ancient Hebrew people, they worshipped these. They worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. They believed that your fate was determined by those lights, um, and that you had better please them or else things were not going to go well for you. The main difference between those other cultures around the ancient Hebrews and the ancient Hebrews is that those that were loyal to Yahweh, no matter what they thought those were, they know you do not worship the sun, moon, and the stars. Um, God warns them not to engage, not to uh, engage in idolatry of the heavenly beings, the heavenly bodies. Those are only reflections of Yahweh and his glory. That's what he tells them. Do not worship them. Um, they're a reflection similar to how human beings on land, similar to how we're an image of God. Um, they're a reflection of him. But Yahweh is creator, and he is supreme over all. And that's what set the ancient Hebrew people apart. They were not to worship them. Well, all, a lot of the others around them did. So nevertheless, I mean, we see worshiping heavenly bodies is a problem. <laughs> it's a problem for Israel as they're influenced by the cultures that are all around them. And that's apparent here in Deuteronomy 4.19 and lots of other places. It says, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So that was a real risk for people as they were influenced by the cultures around them. So that's kind of uh, just a little bit of how ancient people conceived of cosmology and what they thought about the heavenly realm. So the earth, the earthly realm seems pretty easy, right? Because that's sort of our domain. It says in Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. So to us, this all seems pretty simple and real straightforward. It's really not because of the overlapping of the kingdom of heaven and of earth. But it's a little more easy for us to conceive of, you know, because this is kind of where we dwell. So again, these are two distinct realms, heaven and earth, um, but they are not completely separate. They overlap. Uh, And the heavenly realm has become largely invisible to most people. People just walk around and they just think, you know, I'm just, I'm in control of what happens here. I'm just doing my thing and everything is as it appears, but that is not entirely so. There's a lot more going on. And uh, there's a video from the Bible Project that describes, begins to describe the overlapping of the two realms really well. So we're just going to play that now. 
So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. They do a really good job. <laughs> That's why I just showed the video instead of explaining it. I wrote out all of that in my notes, and then I watched the video, and I backspaced for like 30 seconds. <laughs> all right, so... Um, don't you just, I just love that picture of Jesus. Like he is the temple, he is the tabernacle and he doesn't stay here. Like he goes into the enemy territory and he just begins to spread the kingdom of heaven everywhere he goes. And now that's us. We don't just stay in the safe space. Um, we, we take him out. That's what I was praying for this morning. We go out and affect the world. So think about those little purple spots that we're all branching out into the world, into the realm of sin and death. So Jesus still dwells among his followers through Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit isn't like just God's representative. It's, it's God, 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 the son, God, the father, God, the son, God, Holy Spirit. So God dwelling inside of you. You are the new mobile temple. We're the living stones that make up the temple. So we exist as this overlapping space of heaven and earth as Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. So when Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and he was exalted to sit at God's right hand. Um, We know that. Think about here in Ephesians chapter 1. I ask that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power to us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the present age, 
but also in the one to come. That's a lot of past tense language. God raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That has already been done. That is Jesus is ruling and reigning now. And there's also this acknowledgement here in verse 21 about a future completion of that. He doesn't just reign in this present age, but also in the one to come because there's a completion and fulfillment for that. So here is a little illustration also from Bible Project Notes. Here you are. Oh, no, the pointer's not working because the battery's going dead on this too. (laughs) All the batteries. Thank you. Got to be able to point. It's important. Look, there's you. See, it works now. See this? Here's Jesus ruling and reigning on the throne from the heavenly realm, and here's you and your truest sense of your identity, um, ruling and reigning with him. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So I can look at Tabitha. She is sitting right here in front of me. Like I can go, yep, she's real. And she's also ruling and reigning in the heavenly realm with Jesus because of the overlapping realities of heaven and earth. And that's also in the past tense. Like that has been done. She's, she's ruling and reigning with him. Uh, Paul speaks about a believer's exaltation into the heavenly realm like it's right here and now. Not like they sit in the video in some far removed future when you die and you get to take the dive um, into heaven. He talks about it right now because of that overlap. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near. It's going out. It's expanding. So the whole this age and the age to come help explain Um, how biblical writers can talk about things both in a present and in a future tense. So you kind of have this spatial relationship. You have the realms of heaven and earth, but I think it also adds another dimension to talk about this age and the age to come, which is kind of portrayed here. So at Jesus's death and resurrection, the kingdom was inaugurated. The kingdom here on earth um, was inaugurated. And things begin, you, you've got this overlap of this age and the age to come. And they'll be consummated or fulfilled when he returns, when he makes all things new. So that's kind of how they can talk about two things at once, in the present tense and in a future tense. Oh, yeah, and don't forget, you, you're right here. That's also part of this whole, this age and the age to come. You're doing that now. You're in that place now with him in the heavenly realms, but there is going to be fulfillment of that, you know, where we see that with our own eyes. So to talk more about the heavenly realm, so there's other things happening here. You see these guys, and they kind of have like this menacing look to them, right? 
There are powers in the heavenly realms at work for evil, sin, death, deception, all of those things. And uh, we see their influence manifested here on earth by the fact that people are in captivity to them. They're in captivity to sin and death. And uh, we see all of this corruption in the world around us. The important thing to settle on and end on as we go into talking about uh, the different spiritual beings and the corruption um, that's happened there is that Jesus is victorious, right? He's victorious over all the powers, all the principalities that manifest themselves in sin and death. Think of Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He, Jesus, erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So Jesus overcame the rebellion of humanity. He overcame that at the beginning of the video when they said, oh, humans wanted to do it their own way. Jesus overcame that. And he also overcame the rebellion of heavenly rulers and authorities. Um, we are raised from the dead, ruling and reigning with him. And that victory over corrupt powers and principalities, that extends to us because we are in Jesus. Um, we read in Ephesians, in those Ephesians verses, remember that Jesus is seated above all rule in this age and the age to come. And um, that's also described in spatial terms, similar to our heaven and earth realm, if you look at Philippians 2.10. This age and the age to come and also in the two realms. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I just really love that whole big, complete, built out picture of this age, the age to come, the earthly realm, the heavenly realm. Jesus is so all encompassing. He rules and reigns over all of it. And when I think of that whole built-out picture, it really adds a lot of meaning to me when we talk about all things in subjection to Christ, when we talk about his victory and just exactly what it is, his power and all of those things, his power to deliver us, what he's delivered us from, all of those things. Um, this helps add a lot um, to that for me because there's nothing outside of his jurisdiction. It's all under him. So I'll end there. And um, next Sunday, BJ is going to pick up and we'll talk more about the cast of characters um, that dwell in the heavenly realm and how that works with the earthly realm as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we are so thankful for your word. It's awesome. I just pray that as we conceive of all these things, that you would always be um, illuminating your word for us, Lord. Holy Spirit, guide us as we read, as we study, as we listen um, to teaching, Lord. Um, just reveal truth to us always, Lord. And uh, help us to see what it means for our lives and how we live in the day-to-day, -day, Lord. We thank you for your goodness and all you're doing and all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.